A lot of what makes MMA special is its chaos, the uncontrollable factors, last-minute replacements, and moments of absurd escalation. And more often than not, it's not the promoters who lay out the future of mixed martial arts. No, it is the MMA gods that decide what is ultimately best for the sport, as they cancel events, cause freak injuries, shut down venues, and change rulings. They care not for magnitude or historical significance, so it's best when you sign up to be an MMA fan, you are fully aware, and your only hope is to strap yourself in and enjoy the ride. There were several moments in MMA history, at least 10, in fact, that were set up to be monumental but unfortunately ended in disaster. And before the video, just a quick reminder to like and subscribe. We recently noticed only a few of you are getting notifications, so make sure to click the bell and turn those on. I'm Balian from MMA On Point and this is 10 Huge MMA Moments Botched by Bad Luck. Number 10. The International Fighters League I don't need to tell you all the reasons an MMA promotion based around a league format might not be a success. Add to that the fact that there are teams and you are looking at one unique approach to mixed martial arts. Well, that's exactly what the International Fight League was hoping to achieve with its creation in 2006. They did a great job in securing a contract with Fox Sports and My Network TV, making them the first MMA promotion to appear regularly on national television. However, by the end of the year, it was clear the league structure was not a popular one. And so by 2007, they had moved into Grand Prix-style tournaments and super fights and managed to secure some big-name talent in Jens Polver, Roy Nelson, Jeremy Horn, Matt Lindland, Pat Militich, and even Henzo Gracie. But it just wasn't enough. Financially, the initial concept had never picked up enough steam to support a long-term endeavor. Mistakes in the initial marketing of the show and its production had led to backlash from MMA news sites that criticized its glorification of violence and brutality. The founders supposedly got the idea to start the league after watching the 2002 Mark Kerr documentary The Smashing Machine and seemed to poach a few UFC execs to help get things running, but were seemingly in over their heads even when it came to the basic concept of MMA, one-on-one -on -one competition. Well, that's the end of me. They closed less than two years after opening in what could have been a new era for the sport. Supposedly, someone is trying this concept again next year, so let's see how that goes. Number 9. The One US Network Debut in recent years, several new MMA promotions have emerged across the globe, each offering a unique rule set or format in the hopes of competing with the UFC, at least geographically. One first popped up in 2011, and since then, if their numbers are to be believed, they are not. They have established themselves as the largest MMA promotion in Asia. But despite their continental success, they still wanted to try and crack America. And what better way than to host a live event on US national television, TNT to be precise, and supposedly target 90 million US homes. You actually believe that? And and why not a good old-fashioned American superstar to go along with it? And they didn't come much more veteran and respected than the underground king Eddie Alvarez, whose signing with one in 2018 created a buzz across the MMA landscape. So the combination of a US network and a US MMA star should have worked out perfectly. Unfortunately, the MMA gods had other plans as the ending of Alvarez's bout with Lurie Lapicus would be marred in controversy. The contest itself ended after Eddie had Lapicus pinned against the cage and began delivering punch after punch to the back of his head. The ref stepped in and ended the contest in just 60 seconds, and fans in the US got their first taste of one. Yeah, unfortunately not the best debut. Number 8. The Fox UFC Debut the timeline of the early years in the UFC is disrupted constantly by last-minute commission decisions, illegality around the rule sets, and even a ban from US television networks. But several years later, the sport had began flourishing, the UFC had maintained its position on TV screens, and in 2011 had just signed a broadcast deal with none other than Fox Sports, which at the time was a huge step forward. So the first event under the new banner needed to be special. It was a massive opportunity to bring the UFC to a whole new audience. A killer card was put together with the likes of Benson Henderson, Dustin Poirier, Cobb Swanson, and headlined by a heavyweight 
middleweight title fight between the surging Junior Dos Santos and pound-for-pound heavyweight great Cain Velasquez. Not bad for free TV, eh? So much talent on display and a real showcasing of what MMA is all about. However, the decision came through to air only the main event on Fox itself, meaning audiences at home wouldn't get to see the full UFC product. Combine this with the fact that the highly anticipated heavyweight title fight now with more eyes on it than ever before as nearly 9 million Americans were settling down to watch the action ended in just 60 seconds. I mean, sure, that's great for a heavyweight contest, but after years and years of build-up to this point, the MMA gods certainly had the last laugh. Number 7. Bellator's First Pay-Per-View in recent years, Bellator has really come into its own as an MMA organization. Gone are its associations as the circus of combat sports promotions. Yes, they still put on the odd matchup, but they have established deep divisions like light heavyweight with multiple high-level competitors that could give the UFC's roster a run for their money, as well as homegrown stars like AJ McKee. However, some things certainly didn't get off to the best start, and unsurprisingly, the MMA gods have some say in how things went down. The first Bellator pay-per-view event was supposed to take place at Bellator 106, where Tito Ortiz would take on Quinton Rampage Jackson, but just one week before the event, the matchup fell through and the card would be moved to Spike TV. It wasn't until the 110 broadcast that Bjorn Rebney announced the first Bellator pay-per-view would take place at Bellator 120, with the trilogy fight between Eddie Alvarez and Michael Chandler being the highly anticipated main event. But once again, the MMA gods pulled some strings and Eddie received a head injury leading up to the bout, which would see him pulled from the main event. But unlike 106, Rebney decided they would go ahead with the pay-per-view anyway. Rampage fought King Mo in the main event, which again didn't nearly happen after he shoved Mo at the weigh-ins and got into a shouting match with the commission, and the co-main would now be Michael Chandler against late-notice replacement Will Brooks, who would go on to win a lackluster split decision, followed by the main event, one in which Rampage's performance was heavily criticized following a snail's pace of a fight. Number 6. UFC 200 the UFC has a relatively short history, but they certainly do try and make the most of it, with us now approaching 30 years of the company. UFC 100 was a hallmark event packed from top to bottom with the greatest talent the organization had to offer, and a few years later, they certainly wanted to make UFC 200 an even bigger spectacle. So that means the biggest stars, right? Initially, Ronda Rousey was set to make a return following her Holly Holm loss, but required surgery and would be out until 2017. An epic rematch with Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz was supposed to headline the historic event, but Conor was too busy training in Iceland to make it to the US for a press conference and Dana decided, you know what, we don't even need you on this one and removed him from the card. Probably a big mistake. John Jones was set to face Daniel Cormier in a title unification bout, but tested positive for a banned substance and was also removed from the event. He would be replaced by Anderson Silva, but that only led to more boos for Cormier when he decided to wrestle the former champion. Brock Lesnar did make a short notice appearance to co-main the card against Mark Hunt, which also added a few sprinkles on what really was a lackluster dessert in comparison to what could have been. In the end, the event did okay as it broke the US pay-per-view gate with $10 million, but the subsequent fallout following Brock Lesnar's positive test for steroids, exemption from the USADA testing pool, and then still being allowed to compete regardless would throw another dark cloud over the event. Number 5. UFC 5 the format of the UFC has certainly changed over the years, and although now we're pretty much set in our ways apart from the odd money fight, the early days of the sport seemed to reflect the chaos of its contestants. The original format of a tournament remained for the first couple of shows, but by UFC 5 it was clear that in order to get the biggest matchups between its now-growing roster, fights needed to be booked ahead of time, and not as a result of the sporadity of the tournament structure. And so the first super fight was made between three-time champion Hoist Gracie and Ken Shamrock, and this led to the highest pay-per-view buy rate in the company 
company's history. This show also saw the introduction of time limits to ensure the UFC did not run over its allotted satellite time. Subsequently, this would be the last UFC event co-organized by Hori and Gracie, as time limits were against the very ethos of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. The main event was supposed to be a glorious battle between two of the best in the sport, but ended up being a grueling 30-minute affair where an extra five minutes was added in order for a winner to be declared, but as both men were still standing by the end, the fight was declared a draw. A UFC champion was supposed to have been crowned, but after running 40 minutes over their allotted broadcast time, having the super fight turn into a super snoozer of a contest, and with the exit of the Gracies, things didn't exactly go as planned. Number 4. UFC 33 we all know where the UFC lays its hat. Vegas is the fight capital of the world, and I mean they literally built an apex as a global hub of its operations in its sandy deserts. But flashback several years and the possibility of hosting an event in Vegas, let alone setting up a base of operations, seemed out of the question. State athletic commissions across the US adopted the New Jersey Unified Rule Set of Martial Arts in their own time, and it wasn't until UFC 33 in 2001 that they were finally able to bring an MMA show to their town. They stacked the event with three title fights and as much UFC talent as they could muster, with Tito Ortiz, Jens Polver, and Dave Monet all defending their belts. But the event itself was pretty much a disaster. For the first time in UFC history, every fight on the main card went to a decision, leading to the broadcast running over time and quite literally cutting out in the middle of the Ortiz main event. This led to the UFC shortening the live fight cards to just five fights and not putting three title fights on a pay-per-view again for another 15 years. UFC 33 is the only one I can remember where every, every fight sucked. Number 3. The First Pride US Event at a certain point, Pride was undoubtedly the biggest MMA promotion in the world, but as time moved on and the UFC started to grow as an organization, they slowly but surely dominated the US market. Then in 2006, in what some would call an inadvised venture, Pride decided to host its first show on US soil at Pride 32. Aside from the numerous rule changes required by the Nevada State Athletic Commission, the changes to round timers and scoring, as well as Fuji TV dropping their Japanese network deal, they had even more to contend with in the lead-up to the event. Marvin Eastman was replaced by Travis Goldberth after a WFA contract dispute, Mark Hunt was supposed to fight Butterbean but was pulled from the event after Nevada State Athletic Commission thought his wins over Vandalay and Krokop gave him too much of a grappling advantage. I know, right? They also took Vandalay Silva off the card as they ruled it was too close to his KO loss to Krokop for him to compete, who was also taken off the card after an injured foot. If that wasn't enough, after the event there were a litany of PED scandals, with Vitor Belfort and Powell Nastula both testing positive for banned substances and Kevin Randleman's urine sample coming back either as non-human or from a dead human being. He was a monster after all. <laughs> all in all, they had to run around a number of rings to even get the event to go ahead, and the MMA gods had a field day, laughing at their attempt to step outside their bubble and bring the spirit of pride to the American fan base. Number 2. Seth Petrozelli Kills Elite XC well, if you want to talk about the MMA gods pulling on one thread and watching a whole organization untangled, then you should look no further than the Elite XC 2008 Heat event, one which essentially caused the end of the entire promotion. Originally, a star-studded main event matchup was set to head the bill, as Kimbo Slice, now 3-0 in MMA, was matched up against longtime veteran Ken Shamrock, but literally on the day of the event, Ken received a headbutt while grappling, had to get stitches above his eye, and broadcast partners CBS's network executives refused to allow him to fight. Supposedly, brother Frank stepped up and offered to take on Kimbo, he even reportedly said he'd throw the fight, but Slice's team refused. So, Seth Petrozelli stepped up from the undercard and took on the promotion's new star in Kimbo. It took just 14 seconds for him to render Kimbo unconscious, sending shockwaves through the promotion's future matchmaking plans. Following the fight, Petrozelli claimed he was offered a monetary incentive to keep the fight standing. Dana White himself wasted no time in reminding everyone that those kind of business practices are fucking illegal. The Florida State Boxing Commission investigated and found sufficient evidence to proceed with a full inquiry. 
but it was still enough for Showtime to pull out of negotiations to purchase a large stake in the company, and just a few months later, Elite XC folded entirely. Number 1. The Strike Force Brawl in what was undoubtedly a breakthrough event for the Strikeforce promotion, April of 2010 saw them head to Nashville and put on one of the biggest cards in the organization's history to be broadcasted live on CBS. Dan Henderson was making his Strikeforce debut after just KOing Bisping Cole at UFC 100, and he would be up against reigning defending middleweight champion Jake Shields. The event went off without a hitch, with the undercard showcasing some exciting fights, but things grinding to a halt come the top of the bill, with King Mo, Gilbert Melendez, and Jake Shields slowing the pace of the night. No sooner had Jake Shields' arm been raised, Jason Miller appeared in the cage and caused, well, mayhem, as he asked for a rematch against Shields. None other than Nick Diaz was the first to throw a punch at Miller, which quickly erupted into an all-out brawl, with a Caesar Gracie team scrap packing their way to get at Miller. The fallout became a black eye for Strikeforce, and CBS ended their television deal with the promotion and wouldn't re-sign any MMA organizations until the UFC contract with Fox several years later. In what was meant to be a hallmark event for the company, quickly led to disaster and had lingering consequences that damn near sunk the entire Strikeforce ship. Big shout out and thank you to Max Randall for editing this video. You can follow him on Twitter at Max underscore Randall. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.